Hello there, this is Terry, and welcome to the Animation Industry Podcast. Today I'm chatting with Bill Tedford, who is a Toronto-based director, art director, and artist with an extensive list of television design and artistic achievements in both children's and adult television programs, including the Emmy Award-winning Pig and Cat, and Peep in the Big Wide World series, which I used to watch on TVO back in the day. And most recently, he's been working on Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, which won Best Preschool Animated Television Show at this year's Daytime Emmy Awards. So, throughout Bill's 20-year career, he has basically done it all. He's been a cameraman, compositor, assistant editor, animator, storyboard artist, and design supervisor, and one of the characters that he developed is Daniel Tiger. And if you haven't heard about Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood before, it's on its fifth season now. It can be seen on PBS and its affiliates and can be streamed on their site where it averages this insane 40 million views every single month. And it's also translated into 11 different languages and watched in over 180 countries around the world. And in addition to his animation career, Bill is also actively involved in the 48-hour film project and competes regularly. And a highlight for him this year was being asked to be part of Team Canada for the Mini Drones Film Festival. And I'm going to put the link to the film that they put together in the description of this podcast, so make sure you check it out. And so Bill lives in Toronto with his wife and his two beautiful daughters. And when he's not drawing or animating or spending time with his family, you can actually find him at the Seton Archery Range trying to improve his groupings, which is super interesting because I used to arch too. So, Bill, thank you so much for being here. What's What's going on? I just just actually got off work and I ran home to uh, talk to you. Oh, my gosh. So besides archery work film festivals, family, now you're squeezing in podcasts too. Yes, yes. And then we're also planning to renovate uh, part of our house this summer. You need some downtime. Do you take, do you ever take a vacation? <laughs> uh, yeah, my, um, what we try to do uh, as much as we can in the summer is we're lucky enough, like I grew up, uh, and we'll talk about this later, I grew up in like central Ontario and we still have uh, like a uh, lakefront property up there. So Every nice weekend in the summer, we're up on the lake. So it's cool. Nice so that's awesome. Um, yeah. So you're yeah. the art director. You're an art director at Brown Bag Films right now, which is a studio in Toronto. And that's I want cool. I want to talk. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about something that Brown Bag has that's unique to diff, to a lot of studios here in Canada specifically, and that's you've developed your own IPs. Um, so cool. I want to talk about that. But uh, first, you know, you had some very humble beginnings back on a chicken farm. So maybe you can just give us the Coles notes between raising chickens and becoming an art director <laughs> at one of the biggest studios here in Toronto. Uh, yeah, where do I begin? Um, you begin with chickens. With chickens, yeah. So I I, um, I grew up on a little chicken farm just north of Peterborough. I don't know um, how many people know. Most of your listeners from Toronto and from Canada, I guess. Yeah, so. A lot of them are from Sheridan and uh, and a lot of yeah. Toronto listeners too, but internationally, yeah, we have some listeners. So Yeah, so if you look at Ontario, there's like a lower half, a middle half, and an upper half. And the upper half is where the polar bears are. The middle half is all like like a group of seven paintings, and then lower part is like where Toronto is. So I, was, I grew up in central Ontario, basically where the Canadian Shield, which is all rocky, kind of meets the last kind of uh, little bit of... Uh, earth that you could actually farm on and um, my far- my family's been there uh, they came over from Ireland and uh, around 1830 and we came over originally for logging 
we kind of stuck around and did all sorts of things instead of running trading posts. We cleared the land, and you jump up a couple generations to my, my, my family, and we had a farm there. And my father's farm is about 48 acres, and it's, the, it's part of the original Tedford farm, which was 200. And it actually goes right down to uh, a place called um, Clear Lake, which is part of the Kawathas, and that's where I grew up. So I grew up on a farm, and I grew up on the lake at the same time because uh, we had a house down by the lake, and the farm was up the street. And we also had rental cottages. So between working on the farm and kind of taking care of fishermen, a lot of kids, a lot of fishermen from the U.S., I had a pretty awesome childhood, actually. So it sounds like you were destined to be a farmer. How did you end up finding yourself in a completely different career? What was I, what was the instigating uh, moment for you? I I I think the big change was is I was always interested in drawing, and I was always encouraged by my parents to draw, and. Uh, uh, when I was about four years old, my father got a video camera, and I learned how to use. It was a very basic, like uh, it was an Hitachi little basic little video camera. It was the video cameras where the actual recording unit was a fully separate actual like VHS recorder. But I figured out how to do stop motion animation with it, and then at the same time, I was also doing live action short films with my friends, and it kind of just. Uh, spiraled out from there and I just started making movies and animation and drawing and it just kept on progressing. Yeah. And I know in our pre-chat, you said you had uh, kind of helped out on all those old sleep country commercials that became oh, so iconic. Yeah. Back in the 90s. yeah. Yeah. So like uh, that's when I was, um, when I, uh, I think the big change for me is um, when I got to like middle school, um, I had a really good art teacher that um, got me uh, really interested in kind of pursuing my artistic career and was pushing me to go into a, a program that was in our closest, like, bigger town, which is Peterborough, population about 100 people. Sorry, 100,000. And uh, 100 people. I grew up with about 100 people around me, but about 100,000. And they had something called the Integrated Arts Program at PCBS. And I, uh, you had to... Uh, do a portfolio, you had to go in for an interview, you basically had an audition for it, and they did everything. You did music, you did theater, you did pottery, photography. Um, they had a really, really, uh, for the time, a really um, advanced kind of uh, digital um, lab where they had video editing equipment and early versions of Photoshop with like great edit suites and stuff. And I auditioned and put my portfolio and I got accepted into the second year. And that kind of changed my life because it introduced me to a world of art and kind of uh, got me prepared to end up going to uh, Sheridan for animation. But at the same time, I was, uh, um, I was also doing a lot of like uh, video work and more advanced sh short films. And I had a great teacher at uh, PCBS by the name of Chris Kirak. And uh, he would basically just invent new uh, classes in the video and editing program so I could just make short films all the time. Wow. Which I don't think I said in the original notes, but I just I just remember that. So, and that's and that's where it kind of led me to um, a good friend of mine named uh, Matt Servo, who uh, and some other friends who we started getting more advanced and we started writing scripts and uh, we do a lot of local videos. We used to do stuff for like the Peterborough uh, Museum. Um, we would work with other smaller production companies in the city and do like. Um, we do like these things for birthdays and stuff where kids wanted to make music videos. So whatever popular song 
of the time, we would do like a version so all the kids could lip sync and we would like green screen them driving cars and doing all sorts of stuff. So, and then that eventually led, uh, when I got into Toronto and I was waiting for my animation kind of jobs to pick up, I worked with, uh, a production house called Dante entertainment, at, uh, which was Wallace studios, which is now uh, pie in the sky studios up in the junction. And I did uh, sleep country, Canada. We did listen up Canada. We did a bunch of like, um, uh, music videos. I can't even remember everything I worked on because I used to work on them at night and on the weekends because I was doing animation gigs during the. Uh... Well, I, I never thought I'd be talking with someone who worked on the Sleep Country yeah. <laughs> commercials. Um, but okay, so you mentioned a lot of a lot of things in there, and one one question I have about Sheridan is, uh, so you were kind of this jack of all trades for as That's long as, of as, as since you were born, kind of thing. You're doing all these different projects. How did what did Sheridan give you, or what did you get out of Sheridan that uh, streamlined all these different interests into one, like in, into the animation industry? Versus, like, why didn't you go into live action? Why didn't you pursue something else? That was a good question. I was kind of doing both at the same time. Um, I think for me, is I had an interest in both art and like film and television. And I thought animation was a nice amalgamation of the two because it kind of takes the best of both disciplines. And, yeah. uh, and um, I didn't get into Sheridan right away. I actually went to the Art Fundamentals course, and that was amazing. Like, everything that was great about... Cause when I was at PCVS in high school, the art curriculum was amazing, but I also had to take regular school stuff, and I just... That stuff was fine. I had, like, I had a great time in history and everything else, but you have to take everything else. You have to take the Englishes and... In the mass and stuff, but I was always gravitated towards, you know, doing stuff in the theater and making the short films and, like, even when I was introduced to, um, uh, we had a proper dark room and we did photography for two semesters. Like, you couldn't keep me out of the dark room, and I was, I was just, I was always interested in how things work. I was always interested so, in the whole process. But that, and, but that's still interesting because if you took the art fundamentals and that gave you such a broad. Uh, broad experience with so many different forms like you could have gone to photography land if you yeah. enjoy darkroom stuff right so like where did this animation thing I, I, I think i think at the heart of it um i can go back to i just naturally would gravitate towards the stop motion like no one told me how to do it like i think i had a i think i used to look at disney stuff i used to make flip books in my math book yeah so i'd be sitting there in math class not doing my math Instead, I'd be inventing these little stories in the corner of my textbooks, and I'd be flipping them and doing whatever. And I'm sure a teacher at some point would say, you know, stop drawing and you know, do your work, and you're not going to amount to anything. But I guess that didn't really happen. And um, <laughs> so basically, um, when I got there, and but when I got into fundamentals, it was all and everything art all the time, and you couldn't keep me out of the school. Like, I would get there. Like, I've never got up early for anything in my life, right? So, like, except for working on the farm where you have to get up early or anything. Right. But, like, I would I would be in, in for, um, like, a three-hour um, portrait painting class, and I'd be set up by 7.30. And we would paint till noon, take a break, and keep on going. And it was just, it was just the right type of information and the right type of focus. And I would just work on stuff until I was too tired. And I would go home at midnight. And I would... I was still young, right? I was in my early 20s. And we would just do this like six or seven days a week. And I just loved it. I don't know why I just loved it. We would, 
we did bone class, we did uh, life drawing. We used to um, had a really great teacher in fundamentals that um, had a connection with the University of Toronto, and we went and did cadaver drawing. Oh. So, like, you don't really fully understand anatomy until you hold a fully grown man's leg in your hand. And you get to dissect it there and then draw it. Like it's it's such a surreal experience. And like it's like I like I always appreciated art and stuff like that, but when you have people that are giving their bodies to like the pursuit of science and art and tech technology and you get to see all this stuff, like it's it's a totally different world. Like it was amazing. And yeah, wow. A little bit creepy, but um I guess I was prepared for kind of the realities of the physical world and the world of the flesh growing up on a farm because you kind of see that stuff all the time and it's like but like for me i really really appreciated all that stuff and it was um it was really eye-opening gosh so when you when you came out of sheridan what did you like so the animation program also has like life drawing and mm -hmm. and like perspective in a yep. bunch of different areas when you came out of sheridan what did you think you wanted to become well like 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 going coming out of the fundamentals program, like uh, I would do regular classes, and it was all sorts of stuff. It was always geared to a lot, and it was very much like the fundamentals program. Can you can directly go right into the illustration program at the, at the time, or it was a three-year classic animation program which I went into. So it kind of it directs you to build that portfolio. Like it's engineered to do that. And uh, but I just took advantage while I was at the school, so I did all my regular classes. You'd have a quick break at six, and then I was in life drawing every night. And I and I would even go to life drawing on Saturdays. So life drawing was like um, sketches, and you would always talk to them. So you could do like quick, like thirty second to two minute, like like posing and stuff. And they had really good models, and they would wear costumes and do elaborate thematic things like they would have swords and fight each other and we we had a bone room we go look at that we had all our anatomy stuff and it was just it was like a it was a it was all designed to focus the artist on being the best version they can be and train themselves up to go into animation because we knew that the animation program was pretty difficult and they were they were pretty fierce like a lot of it was maybe mythical proportion of what it is, but they'd always talk about like a third of the of the student body would drop out by the first year and stuff. It wasn't quite like that, but it was a difficult, yeah. it was a difficult school. Yeah. So, so when you graduated, so you went through the animation program, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and when you graduated, you know, how did how did you land that first job, that first role? Uh, I got hired before I was even finished. I got like, well, uh, that's great. <laughs> so, it, like it was a first job, um, but uh, there was a group of us that uh, I can't remember how we got wind of it, but we all got down and did interviews, and I think we got hired in March. And I was actually still I actually started working even before we had. Sometimes we'd have a bit of a job fair, and uh, the first show I worked on was a, a show in a very early version of Toon Boom, which no one ever saw. And it was called Hey Joel, and I think it was for like MTV, not MTV, but one of the music uh tv station i don't even remember it only lasted a a season and uh that was in toronto on the uh you know where leslieville is if anybody knows yeah, toronto yeah. it's like kind of the east end and there, you know there's a there's a whole string of um like live action studios down along there it's all along the like, lakeshore there and cherry beach and we were in there it was a place okay. called caliber digital ah 
and I worked there for about a year and a half. Oh. And, they, and they shot um, one of the food TV shows in the back. So at lunch, we'd go over and watch uh, people cook food because we'd be in the audience. Yeah. And um, the best day was when Jamie Oliver came over and we got to watch Jamie Oliver cook food. Did you get to eat it too? <laughs> I, I never ate any of the food. I always sat in the back and kind of as munched away on my lunch, but some people did. And they, they give out samples and stuff. And what was nice too is there was two really big uh, like live action studios right beside us. So if I wanted to take a break and I was working late, I'd jump on my um, my bike and bike around the big movie sets all the time. Oh my gosh! Cool. So it sounds yeah. you're just like living and breathing the whole industry for so long. Yeah. So how did yeah. you end up at, at Brown Bag? Or I guess back in the day it was it was Nine Stories. So how did you end up there? So it's kind of an interesting story. Like we. Um, I had met my future wife at school, and uh, we had moved out, and we were both working at Caliber Digital doing Pageo. Um, uh, at the time, she was still an international student, so she had a she had to work with working visas and stuff. It's a little bit trickier. Like I don't know if anyone who's listening has had to deal with working in other countries, but it's there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through. So. We had both worked on that show because uh, when you graduate at the time from Sheridan, you can get uh, a one-year working visa. And But in order to continue, because in the Canadian um, industry, there's a lot of uh, government money that's involved, so you can get some tax breaks and stuff. But uh, they, the hook on that, like the, the stipulation is they want you hiring local talent. So the studio that is hiring international students or international workers has to really um, want to have you for a, like a certain reason because they, they have to justify why they're hiring someone from another country versus locally. So um, she actually got onto another show, but she was having trouble with her work permit. That fell through. The studio didn't have much, so we ended up working at another little independent studio that was started by a friend of ours named Barney Warnoff, and we worked at a place called Super Popular Studios up in Peterborough. And, okay. and, um, and that was a great thing because there was a lot of people we know. It was a real startup, and um, we were doing a mixture of live action and animation, and it was kind of a sketch-based uh, show. And uh, it was really a, like, a, like, a, like a passion project and a lot of love because uh, the money kind of fell through at the end, and we couldn't do what we wanted to do. And unfortunately, a lot of us had to leave the project, and that's when I started working... Because I had my back, you know, I had my background in live action. I started working through a friend of mine, Matt Davidchuk again, also known as Matt Servo. Um, that's his stage name. Uh, at Dante Entertainment with Jeff Bolton, and that that guy saved my ass because uh, we were down to about our last two hundred dollars. My wife was still working up at Super Popular, and uh, I remember the day that it happened because I I went and I bought my sister. Um, a birthday present then I realized we didn't have enough money because we were still keeping our apartment and we had subletted it. So I actually had to return birthday presents just so we had enough money to get by. And then this job <laughs> this job kicked in, this live action gig, and I was um I was like a second camera operator, um assistant editor, and uh, later on I was doing the uh compositing. Oh my that, gosh. And that kept us going for about a year. Down to, then, down to two hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, and what you asked. So, me, so, oh. to, 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 oh, sorry to bring it back. 
Um, my wife actually started at uh, Nine Story now Brown Bag first, and she uh, was working there for a couple months. And she's like, "You should try this place out." Nice. So she got the job there. So, so it all worked out. Wife, yeah. So, so, yeah. well, you've been. I think you've been there for like fifteen years or something now, which is which is great. You've seen that yeah. studio grow so much. Yeah. When we started, like, um, my wife was at the tail end of the first round. Like, um. The studio was founded by uh, Steve Jaros and Vince Camisa. And uh, the show that they got him off the ground, which is Peep in the Big Wide World, was they were ramping up production. And he, my wife, Hijo, had uh, been hired in the fall of 2003. And then I was still working at uh, Dante, the live action studio, doing like Sleep Country Canada and Listen Canada and all those other crazy projects. We also did like a sex education show called Unzip, which was a whole other story. But anyway, um, <laughs> look it up. It sounds it's, like it would be a whole other story. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, it paid the bills. Let's just say that. It, it paid the bills. That, leave it at that, I guess. Um, so and, and I got hired in March. Yeah, of the following year. Yeah, go on. It's fine. You're, so you're an art director on uh, specifically Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. Um, yeah. What is, what does that exactly mean? Like, what does the day to day look like for you as an art director? Um, like art directors in general are kind of responsible for the overall aesthetic look and tone of the show. Um, uh, in my experience, art directors um, usually work their way up through several different variants different disciplines so i come up so when i was started at um nine starting out brown bag i started as an animator and then i worked myself my way up to a design supervisor and from a design supervisor i went to uh art director so that's 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 the path i took but you also get a lot of art directors that kind of come up through um background painting that's another one and, and they're usually just really good artists and they have really good aesthetics um I specialize in character design, even though my real passion when I work and stuff is I love uh, like storyboarding and storytelling. But I do that as well. So and I, um, it was a flash show. Like um, we are now a Toon Boom show, but our foundation and our our origins uh, with Brown Bag was it was a flash show. And back in the early two thousands, it was kind of a, a cheaper way of getting these. Um, the new kind of digital age of uh, TV animation up because you got to remember before that, like in the 80s and 90s, back uh, at Nelvana and all the other places, it was all overseas work, right? Because it was so expensive. And um, even when I went to Sheridan, it was kind of a transitional period from the analog, hand drawn, on paper into the digital era. Like even when I first started my first year, which is like 99. The old camera system at Sheridan was still there, and they were just like the the summer program before us was the last like full run uh, course that actually shot stuff on film, and we switched over to digital after that. So it was timing, I guess, was the important part. That's good. So you said uh, yeah. traditionally, or from what you've seen, a lot of background painters mm -hmm. eventually become animation directors because of they have a strong aesthetic and art style already. 
what art, maybe, art directors, art directors. Oh, sorry, art directors. Yeah. Sorry, yes. What maybe opportunities or skills did you develop or take advantage of that allowed you to take this path? Because you you weren't a background painter, right? You're an animator. No, originally. I'm like, like um like I I can I am a I do paint, but it's not my forte. Like uh, like I actually uh in one of the things I used to do in like a, a high school as well is I got into mural painting for a while, which is weird. So I uh, between that and I worked with a a really awesome artist like who I would consider like a hardcore painter by the name of Jeff Delaire. He was really the one of the first guys that taught me how to properly paint. He was an oil painter. So I um I think you need to have a strong sense of design, color, aesthetic. Um, and uh, I think what makes a really good art director is you um you kind of go out and you take from different disciplines and mediums, and you're looking at stuff, and you're not like uh I'm also kind of interested in um, architecture, and I like the concept of function and design in you know even like anything from a simple tool to how like you know um, like just today i had a design um uh kind of like a like a pool area and a water park for a, for one of the shows i'm working on and i just like i think it goes back as earlier earlier i said i kind of like the idea of just kind of imagining how things are and you kind of work through that so um like with Daniel Tiger is a perfect example is um, when we were originally kind of designing the look of the show, we had the original Fred Rogers kind of um, public access, puppeteer, low budget um, kind of concept where he'd do the little hand puppets and stuff. And then you have these sets that were kind of, kind of handmade looking. So in the back of my mind when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about puppets and handmade. And I was also thinking about the era because, like, the golden age of Mitchell Rogers, when we started off as like late '60s and '70s. So I started taking a little bit of design aesthetics from that. And the thing that I think helped put it all together is um, I got the the art of book for up. That's about the right time because this is around 2009, 2010. And when they were doing up, they were doing all these little miniature design things, and they were talking about their design aesthetic where they would take adult sized materials and components and little buttons and stuff and they would build these little kind of miniature characters so i was like when we design the characters and we have this kind of um history of these like i don't know one foot size puppets let's build like chunky kind of lovable round little characters that kind of reference the idea that they would have been built by adult like human-sized stuff so everything's oversized in the show and everything kind of has this timeless look to it where it doesn't um, it doesn't really give you an actual time period but we take hints from 70s design and 70s colors choices and we've also mixed this little handmade arts and crafts mixed media look and that's how we kind of came up with the look and the other kind of so yeah yeah it sounds like you already had a whole bunch of skills very similar to, to painting that you know, enabled you to kind of move up the ranks and take on this role. Mm -hmm. But it also sounds like, you know, you're you this jack of all trades persona that or not persona, but just this skill where you always want to learn everything and and take it on and, and mm -hmm. improve stuff has also driven you forward too. like, because you could have, for instance, stayed as an animator and mm -hmm. been happy with that and and become a master animator. But instead, you chose to 
take a different path after that. So, um, yeah, is there anything that kind of drives you to to take on that new role, or? Um, I, I, uh, my wife is a much better animator than I ever was. <laughs> and uh, it's not that I don't love it. I, I loved animation, but I, I think part of the driving force is I always, I liked what I was doing, but when I would see problems and see that slightly bigger picture, and I'd start working myself backwards in the production pipeline or forward, I'm like, well, if we could do a better job here, here, and here, it would make the life easier for everyone. So I always was kind of pursuing these paths and seeing whether either the solutions or the problems would take me. So I think it was a lot of curiosity too. And I always found if I am, when I was an animator, if I understood more about what became before and after and how it was made, I would do a better job at animating my scene. That makes sense. I mean, if you're looking at the bigger picture outside of just your role, Mm-hmm. And trying to understand how to how to find more efficiencies, mm-hmm. then actually it sounds like you you got more responsibility to keep doing that. Yeah. So yeah. That's it. And yeah, and um, I like I like being able to influence stuff earlier and try to hopefully make it a better overall package. Because I also was interested about because I'd already done like the end part because I was working and working with editors and stuff, and I knew just working with professional editors, I never had the organizational skills to be uh, like a full-time professional editor, even though all my independent stuff I edit myself, and um, which we'll get into later when we talk about development. A lot of those skills came back into play where my independent filmmaking days really proved beneficial when I have to like um, rapid prototype, for lack of a better word, of something, because I can do multiple things at the same time at a reasonable uh, skill level and pace that... um, I can come up with ideas without wasting a lot of time or resources. And then going back the other way is I always knew when I animated on shows that had stronger boards, stronger stories, and better Leicas, it always made the animation process better. And that was supported by good functional design and the strong functional layouts and BG pain. So I just, that's how I kind of approached it. It's yeah, like well, a big well, yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, and you mentioned development, which maybe we should talk about now. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Brown Bag is, has developed a number of IPs, which is, is pretty unique from a lot of studios. But it's also kind of the goal of a lot of studios, you know, get yeah. those contracts, which are the bread and butter. And then on your mm-hmm. with the spare time, you know, create your own show and hopefully that will take off, too. And that's also very rare for that to come together so nicely. So. How, how did Brown Bag go into developing its own IPs so successfully, uh, and what like what was the environment that enabled that? Do you think? I, I think there's many factor factors, and like I can speak from a, a creative point of view. Like from a creative point of view, if you have if you would develop stuff internally, you have more contra- creative control over it, and that's probably. There's a lot of other things that are taken into consideration, but that's a big thing. Like if you're developing, uh, say something, um, usually how something would work is like say you have a creator out there that has a book series or whatever, this one, but they have they have that intellectual property. Lots of times, there's many ways they can go about doing that. They can have a relationship with a broadcaster or someone like Netflix. They'll put together their package and how they want to do it and they'll have a proof of concept and 
kind of their business plan slash their artistic kind of vision, they might go to the broadcaster, and if the broadcaster likes them enough, they'll say, go out and hire an animation studio and everything else you need. And then we just become part of that service industry, which you referenced earlier. But then you end up with a minimum of three parties involved. And that can be a good thing, or it also can be a really tough thing. So I think from a studio point of view is if they can develop more internally, A, it gives them more control, and also gives them more financial control. Like I would yeah. say those are probably two of the big leading factors because if you control more of the of the intellectual property, it means basically more money for you and you also get kind of control of your own destiny. I would say those uh, are the two biggest things. Yeah, I mean, that's the dream. So maybe can you go through the process of nothing to now you have your own IP that's that's doing well? Like, like where do you start? Is there... Is I would it say like market research and then yeah there's a whole like um the studio i work for uh, specializes in like preschool a lot of the shows i do is preschool so with preschool there's a there's a pretty potentially doesn't always happen but there's a huge educational component so yes there are market market research and we have a huge marketing department we have a huge international sales department and everyone's always feeding in like, um, but as far as the educational component, which I'm starting to learn a little bit more about, because we work with some amazing people, like in New York and whatnot, where they, um, and even like someone like PBS, PBS is, uh, you know, public has a lot of public money. They, um, they have a very diverse uh, audience, but they're also, um, what I've learned when I'm just seeing how the public, like the PBS people work, is the parents are just as important as the kids where the parents are trying to pick high quality television for their kids because the, like their kids could be watching several hours a day right and they want a strong they want to use that tool as an education conduit so they um it it doesn't really matter exactly what it is but when you're trying to develop a show say like peg plus cat peg plus cat is a show about math and that's not our, like, that was a joint production for us because we worked with um, uh, 987 Now 100 Chickens, and that's led by, like, uh, Billy and Jennifer Oxley. And, um, but when they were developing the show, every episode would have this um, requirements for, like, a mathematical kind of uh, educational component that would allow them to kind of make sure they're getting the money through different different government groups and through PBS so they can um, basically make a show. Let me see if I can say this correctly. So when they're, when they're, when you're making a show and you try to get money, you get money from the broadcast or you can get money from the studio because everyone's got to put money up in advance, but there's additional funds that you can get through government programs. And a lot of those programs that allow different uh, flows of cash have educational requirements. So that's why they, that's why they do it. It helps them get money. Is there anything else in there? So, like, uh, because PBS is is in is in the states, but you're in Toronto, so it's kind of atypical for a Toronto studio to develop an IP for an educational show that's being shown to to the US. Well, yeah, so, like, 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 like the st the examples I talked about were joint production with American um, right creators and stuff. But I I, I think um, with us because um, Pete. Yeah, was the same idea. It was a light science thing, and I and um, 
I don't know the specifics of because I was just an animator back then, so I don't know what their business plan with that. But it, it was shown on both PBS and it was shown on TVO, and uh, it when you add an educational component, it's kind of like a Sesame Street. It puts you right. in a certain category, and I know that um, uh, when you're working in in um, in Canada, I don't know the specifics uh, about funding for stuff specifically for educational components, but maybe in the footnotes that I can look that up for you guys. Because um, uh, we, even though we're a Canadian company, we're now a world company, and when we're making shows, we're making them not just for the Canadian and even the American market, we're making it for the international market. So, uh, so and the Americans being next door, with 10 times the size of us, and there's a lot of money and there's talent and all sorts of stuff there where we have to, you know, you have to take advantage of that. So we do, a lot of the stuff we do is involved with a lot of American money and resources. So say tomorrow your brown bag is like, we want to develop a new IP for the American market. How, how do you start doing that? I know you, you mentioned... Uh, when I saw you at Taffy that you had like uh, you did some some mm -hmm. like studies with kids who would who would like watch the yeah, shows yeah, or you could look at or yeah, developing like, books or things that already existed oh. that you knew would be successful. So I uh, like you, you're familiar with when uh, in live action like uh, they have test audiences. Yeah, test audiences. Yeah. So, so a lot of studios do the same thing, but they do it, especially when there's a a comprehension component. They will test. Uh, their shows with actual kids to see if they're understanding stuff. Do they? Do the kids get a little test afterwards? Like if the if that episode yeah. is about like learning what a square is, does the kid have to draw a square? Like like kind of like that. Like basically, if if like um if they're watching a show about um how to feed your goldfish, yeah. I, I I have to have to use a hypothetical because everything I'm working right, right, on right. tell you about. So so so, <laughs> so if it's uh if it's a show about you know, looking after a goldfish and feeding the fish on time and cleaning the tank, you structure your show about that. Okay. And then you let kids watch it in like a form or you tell them the story. And then when the kids are done, you ask the kids if they understood everything. Were yeah. they interested? Were they not interested? Did they understand about the goldfish? Did they know? And they'll ask them questions like, well, what do you do with the fish? How often do you feed it? And if the kids say, well, the show taught me to feed the fish once a day and clean the tank once a week. We know the educational components of the show work. But how do you know if it's entertaining or not? Because, like, well, school it, teaches you stuff, and that's not always entertaining, but cartoons are supposed to be entertaining and teach you stuff. It's engagement, basically. Yeah. So, the, so you're watching to see if the kids are engaged. So and they're not know, bored or, yeah. like... And you ask like the kids about playing. that. <laughs> so it's, oh, my it's, gosh. Yeah. So, so, okay, so you have something to show the kids, but you have to develop that something first you said it's a lake of real and whatnot so oh, yeah. you have a you have a dedicated team to developing ips or or yeah. you you guess get an email one day saying hey bill uh we have this idea can you like spend some of your extra time developing this lake of real on your own like how does how does that come together you know when well, everybody's working on on stuff already well we have a kind of a core group and there's different facets to that but on the design point of view, the, like we do have an actual department, but as far as like, do we have animators and background artists and 
directors all full time? No, because all our good people are always on other shows. But uh, we always have a couple little projects in the background, and there's always a core group of people kind of running the major projects. And what's nice about development is you can actually work in pretty small groups for most of it. Because usually there's the, the key in all development projects is there's always at least one creative person and there's one like managerial and then you'll have like a department head. So like Toronto has a, like a head of development, New York has a head of development and there's like a certain team around them and so is Dublin because we have, we have studios in all three of those locations. Yeah. And then if something is going, say it's like a, it's a, like a kid's, I don't know, like a kid's uh, book series or something, you can work with, like, uh, say with the main creative person, then you can, you can work with people in-house, you can get freelancers, you can work with a variety of people, and you start kind of putting together a package, in, and there could be an educational component, there could be all sorts of components. Uh, at some point, they might even bring a writer in to kind of maybe write out a treatment, or if they want a script, they'll work a script out, and they'll start building kind of up this little universe that they can start presenting and then start to shop around. And if there's interest, that's when you can start bringing more people. So, well, I mean, that to be in that department sounds like it's like very fun and dynamic and changing all the time. Do you hire specific, like, do you hire somebody for like head of development or do you take people off from different projects that you know have experience in this? Like, like to kind of run the actual head of development? Yeah. Well, there's people in the studio that usually run that and they're, they're kind okay. of... They'll, they'll, they'll be, like, producer-esque driven, but sometimes a lot of producers are also pretty good at writing. Like, they kind of have a lot of different skills, and you, you meet different types of folks that can do that. But then there's always, at some point, there's usually um, the bigger studios will have some type of um, creative executive that's involved as well. So... So say you take like a very popular children's book or something and you add that educational component and you've tested it out with the audience. Now you have to shop it around How, mm -hmm. like and I'm assuming there are other tons of other studios shopping around too. like so it mm -hmm. must be pretty competitive to get that space. How do you, you know, capture the the network to say that uh, like ours is going to be great. Do you have a, I don't know, is there like a hook you have? Like ours is more educational. The kids liked it better Yeah, because it's all this idea at this point. I, I was trying to think of a hook because any hook that I have in my mind is on stuff that I'm actually not allowed to talk about. So I was trying oh, to no. think of, <laughs> I was trying to think of a hook that would actually have something that's pre-existing. Like the only thing I think we can talk about is, uh, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly what it is because I've only just helped a little bit on Xavier. The stuff that we showed because we've already announced it is I think their their hook is like how like how how even little kids can change the world or something. That's oh. that's Corey Bolbiak's show. It's something like that. Yeah. Okay. The, so yeah, I saw, I saw the previews of Xavier. So yeah. the hook is like here's here's so, something inspirational that that yeah. kids can. Uh, yeah, they, they can look forward to it. It's, it's basically, I think, I, I'm kind of butchering it because I actually don't remember what the heck was. But, um, sure. <laughs> but it's basically the uh, the main uh, uh, guy behind that is Brad Meltzer, who's like a writer, yeah. and he wrote like a, like a book series. And his motivation behind that, which is kind of the mantra of the, of the show, is he wanted his kids when they were young, when they were looking like their, their heroes and their people they were looking up to were superheroes, and he wanted to take real 
world heroes, like in science and arts and literature and stuff, and turn those real people that are actual heroes in real life and make them interesting to his kid. Well, that's really wholesome. Yeah, so that, <laughs> I like that a lot. So that yeah. was that was kind of the motivation. So the, that's the motivation behind the Savior. Nice. Like one, one of them, anyway, right? Right, right, right. Just make a fun little show. So that's like that's something we can talk about because that show is already in production. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So it's in production right now. What is that? So okay, so a network says, yeah, we want this, and then uh, Brown Bag is like, all right, now we're going to allocate a whole bunch of resources to developing this yeah. this show. How long does that take? Does that take years? Do they hire it a can. whole new team? Yeah, we can. It can. And sometimes people who kind of get the show off the ground aren't the same, necessarily the same people who end up doing it for the series, but it can be. Um, uh, some some broadcasters will uh, will like the idea so much, and the intellectual property is attractive enough that they know there's going to be a a market for it that they'll go write the series and they'll order say like I don't know 24 episodes or something. Right. Sometimes they'll do a pilot first. Like Daniel Tiger was done with the pilot. Back in the day, like I think we started working on the pilot in 2010. It took us nine months to do the pilot. Okay. And so, so there's and there's usually a little bit of money there. They do the pilot, and then after the pilot's done, they they'll launch the season, and they're now five seasons late. So w- one question I have is like, what is to stop? Okay, so you're you have a very large studio with a lot of talent and connections in the industry and experience. What is to stop? Like myself, for example, going to my animation friends who have free time, we put together a pitch, we do some research at a local school, we talk to somebody who wrote a book, and it, like there's no copyright or anything like that going on. What's to stop me from putting together a pitch and going to PBS nothing. and saying nothing? So, so Nothing stops you. And actually, that would probably, if you can succeed, that would probably be your, your best bet. Um, the only thing that might be is they won't know who you are. I'm, right. I'm not discouraging the idea because right. that, I think from a personal point of view and being an entrepreneur and kind of going out and doing that kind of stuff, um, that is what a lot of people actually do. Um, uh, but the the other uh, X factor in that is how that do you... That was going to be my question. What is, what is, what's well, missing? Well, they, they, a lot of this stuff is built, built on trust because you're, you're talking with a broadcaster that potentially is going to give you millions of dollars. They, gotta, they need to have the, the trust in the group of people that they can actually su- succeed. So what, when, how, how do you build that trust? Just by having a studio and having shows under your belt? Or do you, do you uh, say, like... I've never, I, I haven't gone that road because I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to be working through the studio system all the time. Right. So they're like... Um, well, at least with our studio, with our broadcasters, there's years and years of trust and being able to deliver. So that that that's a currency in kind of the business. But it but don't discourage in the fact because if um, you're working in the industry and you come up with a really great idea and you do your research and you really come together with a really good concept and it, and they understand that, they'll they'll want to do it. But um, that requires most of the people that I know that have kind of done a version of what you're talking about usually have come out of something else and they've worked with other people. Nice, got that. So, um, another question I have about the process is once you sell the show and then it takes 
takes maybe years to produce, how do you ensure it gets renewed for another season? Because there's so much time in between selling a concept and actually delivering the product. Uh, there's, I, I think, I think um, there's really no guarantees in this business. And to back backtrack a little bit, like I think over the last three or four years, I personally have worked on about eight projects, and out of those eight, three only ever made it. Uh, so does four. does PBS come back to you and say our viewership on this show is so it's not working, or uh, um, we have a better show that we like now? Um, I don't. Uh, I don't know. Like there. I, I know some reasons, yeah. Like obviously, like their ratings and systems, and the cost of it, and how well the production goes, and also PBS and will will have a bunch of other shows that they're showing, right? So if they have you know five shows or so of in this kind of roughly the same category, and I guess at the end of every season, whatever's performing the least, they have to make that judgment call whether they're going to go forward. Like a like for me personally, I don't have that much experience because I went the major shows I work on. There's a lot of stuff in between. Is I did I started at Brown Bag on Peep and it went five seasons, and uh, it just kept on going and eventually it kind of came to an end. But we had a lot done, and then um, I did a bunch of other stuff in between. But I've been working on Daniel Tiger for ten years, and we just did our hundredth episode maybe three months ago. Well, congratulations! And we, yeah, and we're going into our fifth season, so. Um, it's popular. I guess we have a we have a linen line at Target. I've never seen it, but <laughs> I, guess kids, I guess kids like it. So I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon because I yeah. think it's checking enough of the. Well, once you have that linen line at Target, you know you've made it. <laughs> I, I've been told. Like I don't even know. Like uh, I think when we first got um, toys being made, they sent up a box of toys to us up in um, in Toronto. So we all kind of got some of the toys. It's weird. And stuff that you would you know help create like and and to, and to talk about this kind of stuff like on the original show it wasn't just me it, like we had a whole team of designers and animators and all the backgrounds were done by a, a wonderful uh, art director by the name of Kelly DeVries who's worked on a ton of stuff for years and years I think she got her start on like Prince of Egypt or something oh, wow. back in the day and um, also there's lots of awesome people down in New York too because we have the original Fred Rogers, and we have all that stuff to pull from. And Angela Santomero and Tracy Down, and who at the time was out of the blue, they did some really, really early concept stuff. And when we got it, there was already a lot of really basic things kind of figured out. And we yeah. took those kind of concepts and we built them into animatable characters. Um, um, but I think I, the cast was pretty big. Like there's like 12 or 15 characters that we had to build for the pilot. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I thought pilots are usually like, here's the main character and maybe a situation they find themselves in. You had 15 characters you had to design. Think, I'm trying to think about it. Is it 15? Like, it's all the kids and all the adults. So it's, oh, my gosh. Like the Tiger family alone is four. PBS probably saw it and was like, oh, this is huge. We have to buy this if it's mm-hmm. they're already doing this much work on it. So Yeah, and we build up our cast over the year. Like, we... Like, like, um, when we're doing these shows, like we're like the other side of all this thing, which I don't even pretend to understand, is you got to have amazing producers on your side because they yeah. are they are figuring out stuff sometimes months, if not years, in advance. And if you don't have good producers and good people that get the schedules and the budgets, because you can have the best show in the world with the best animation and the most amazing things, but if you're always late 
if you're never on budget and it's a nightmare to work on, it's not going to last very long. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. So producer it's, kind of brings it all together. Do you, yeah. does that mean you work very closely with the producer then? Oh, uh, I would be dead without them. And any, <laughs> any, any person who doesn't agree with me, I, I, they must not work with good producers because we're really lucky to have some of the best producers. Though. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. I trust well, them with my creative life all the time. Well, well, that's awesome. And to have that relationship and be able to build that trust, that's great too. So, mm -hmm. um, what is, what is it like working at Brown Bag? Like, what's the culture like? Like you've been there for so long and I'm assuming you are planning on being there longer. How, mm -hmm. how is it in, uh, internally? It, it can be hard, like any yeah. production. It can be like, uh, we sometimes get painted into a corner like anyone else. It can be grueling, but I've been working with a lot of the same people for going on 15 years, and Seal's got some of the best people I've ever worked with. And I've worked at uh, several places and stuff, and I still talk a lot with my other friends and colleagues who have gone on to other places. And we have people that come and go and always come back, and it's um, I um, I think overall it's very rewarding, and you kind of make it what you want to make it. And then I'm always trying to push myself and look for opportunity and try to um. So, because right. you can be creative, but you know, when you think about it, we do we did a hundred episodes, but those episodes are two eleven minutes. So I've I've done that. I've done Daniel Tigers two hundred times. Well, I was away out for a little bit working on another show, but for the, for all intents and purposes, the Daniel team has basically been doing the same thing two hundred times over the last ten years. And so, do you do you like dream in Daniel Tiger? I don't, but my kids growing up got used to because I didn't want to miss them growing up. So I would bring home Leica reels and rough cuts, and we'd like eat, you know, eat dinner at eight o'clock at night in front of the TV, and I would be making notes on my laptop. And now, with my kids, because they've grown up with seeing how like the sausage is made, yeah. they they're really critical of animation. So we'll be sitting there watching the TV show, and they'll stop me and go, "Wait a minute, that hookup didn't work." Oh, that, that's wrong. <laughs> so they this they don't know any any different, right? So it's right. kind of so like in order so we could spend time with because we do my wife and I do put a lot of time into it. Like if we're working late, sometimes we'll split, and the girls will come back and sit beside us at the studio at night and just watch Netflix while we, you know, make sure an editorial pass gets out or, you know, the online for the next day. Right. Sounds like your kids are gonna have. Uh... They're going to be producers or directors themselves. It's, it sounds like they already are if they're critiquing your work. Well, I, ho I hope. I, well, if you know, we're always going to support what they want to do, but I, I hope that maybe they choose something else. Because uh, well, what if they want to become chicken farmers? What about that? Uh, well, then all the power to. <laughs> uh, well. This chat has been great. It's been very insightful into developing kind of IPs and, and also becoming like an art director. Is there any is there any like news you can share from Brown Bag or, or yourself personally that you want to share? Well, if you're uh, getting out of school or you uh, are in the Toronto area and you um, are looking for work, send your portfolio over. Interesting. Okay. Well, I will. Uh, I'll make sure I pass it on to all my classmates. Uh, are you looking for first years or yeah. third years or fourth years or does it matter really? No. Nope. Anybody who's 
town. No, doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah, like I think I think one thing is like um, I know there's a something sexy about whatever is the most popular. Like, like rightfully so, everyone should be start talking about what they did on Spider-Man, you know, and Spider-Verse. Yeah. Um, but there's a whole other world of animation out there, and um, I think something that I'm always out trying to promote is. Uh, we're a studio that is full of artists like everywhere else, and yeah, we do focus on a lot of preschool, but we also do like stuff like Magic School Bus, and uh, there's a lot of potential, and like the industry's really changed, even in the last five years, and there's a mandate at uh, Brown Bag to really elevate what we're trying to do, and push our push ourselves creatively, push ourselves from a storytelling point of view, and really try to make some pretty incredible stuff. I can't talk about exactly what we're doing, but Right. We got some really awesome stuff in the pipeline. So, well, your studio's grown so much over the years, so it, it's obviously been paying off. One uh, question I have about the portfolio thing is: so yeah. you've obviously seen a lot of a lot of portfolios over the time you've been there. What yeah. is something that you look for specifically in a portfolio that maybe says this person is going to help us push, or this person is going to bring something to the table we don't have? Uh, like, what is something that stands out to you right away in a portfolio? Like. For us, because I work a lot with our, our Toronto like, creative director, and mm-hmm. just last fall we, we were working on a pilot that we had to rejig a little bit, and we need to bring some, some fresh talent in. And I think for two positions, we looked at 45 portfolios. And I would say more often than not, within the first 30 seconds, I'll know if the person has, well, what their skill level is, um, are they doing something that we need, and is there something unique and interesting about their personal style that we feel is beneficial to what we're working on? Because we've been doing it for so long. And, gotcha. and But when we see, like, I think of the, the core of any of that stuff is um, if you're a student or you're, or, you're, or you're looking at how to improve your, your skill sets, just work your craft. Just work, work that stuff and try to learn something new every day and keep on pushing it and pushing it. Because there's a lot of good people out there, and when when a a portfolio is like stellar, and everyone knows, when we're talking, you know, when you're listening to this, everyone knows who's who's either in animation right now or who has friends. You know who the superstars are, but and, and everyone has this illusion that they wake up in the morning and they just like that. Like a lot of those people, they they're that way because that's all they do. Right. And if you if you if you, if you get disciplined. You, you think smart, you work smart, and you really work on improving what you think uh, you're going to be really good at, and you, and you get to that, that point where it's really showing in your work, your portfolio will do all the talking for you, and it'll get you in the door. I guarantee it. I think that's great advice. Are there any like tropes that you see? Like as soon as you see this thing in the portfolio, you're like, oh, it's that thing again. Like, um, like, like me, because I was trained as a classical artist and by no stretch of the imagination i always i'm the worst critic of my own stuff and i usually hate everything i do and i'm always trying to improve myself but um get your daughter's your daughter's critiques can help you uh (laughs) i i would say the two things i would say is get your fundamentals down yeah so what, it doesn't, and it doesn't matter. You don't like, because I'm sure you, you might be talking with um, 3D animators and stuff. Like, I, I'm coming from a very drawing-centric place because that's what I do. But 
you don't have to be. You can if you're if you're like more of like a three D animator and you um, you're doing lighting or rigging or modeling or working in Mudbox or whatever, you just learn your craft inside out and and look at who the best in the business and how they're doing it. And very early on, there's nothing wrong with mimicking people because mimicry is how you improve. Like when you copy other styles early on, that's how you find your own style. But right. the other side of that is once you get professional, showcase your own style. I, I think it's important. I think it's important to show that you can draw and mimic other people because in our business, most of the time, the majority of the artists who are working on stuff, the style and everything has already been worked out. So if you can take something and quickly dissect it, and especially if you're a character designer, and you can understand that style right away and you fit into that cog, but also showcase what you're you're naturally good at and what you can add to the kind of to the party, the animation party, and and when people are say in development offices are looking for a new take on an existing character, they'll look for people that are probably you know they're tapped in, they have their their fingers on the pulse of either like the independent comic world or up-and-coming other animation projects or whatever artistic kind of uh, beats and rhythms that are flowing through that the mainstream hasn't figured out yet. Gotcha. So the two things would be focus on the fundamentals because you can tell right away when somebody hasn't done that. Mm -hmm. And the second one is to Demo master... Ma sorry? Yeah, master... master uh, start off by mastering other styles. And, and there's nothing wrong with mim mimicry, but don't pass yeah. it off as your own work. But then develop your own style. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Is there yeah. anything you wanted to share about uh, maybe for another studio who's listening to this, thinking of developing their own IP? Any advice you you give on that? Well, Final words. Like f from a selfish point of view, just don't develop don't. anything. So we. <laughs> 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 um, um, like uh, like places like Industrial Brothers, which uh, a lot of those guys I grew up with. It's I I love it when I see another studio that does something. And I'm like, how did they do that? Like when when Tangled first came out, the animated the new yeah. animated series, like uh, the, those trailers were probably played for a week straight in our studio. We're trying to figure out how to do it because we knew they did it in Toon Boom. Wow! And it's 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 healthy competition. Right. That's so good. I uh, my actual word of advice is everyone out there just make the best stuff you can, and we'll all get better. Well, I, I think that's the easiest thing to do. <laughs> I think it's the hardest thing to do, actually. Yeah. But yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, well, thank you so much for uh, coming on and sharing all your, your wonderful insights into the world of studio work and, and art direction and IPs and, and even chicken farming um, and sleep country commercials. I really, yeah. I really appreciate you coming on. So thank you so much for, uh, for joining me today, Bill. Sounds good. Thank you. Cool. And if you're listening and want to get in touch with Bill and send him your stellar portfolio, which you have done mastery of mimicry and uh, all that stuff that he mentioned, uh, you can you can find him on LinkedIn and I'll include the, the link to his LinkedIn profile in the description of this podcast. Yeah. And I think we also have like uh, probably at Brown Bag Films Toronto. Like if you go to like the uh, Brown Bag Films website, they would also have a uh, uh, a link to send portfolios in too. Perfect. I will include that that link in the description of this too. Yeah. Um, and that's all for now. So thank you for listening. Okay, bye.
Yeah.